Welcome back to Flex Your Head, another special episode of Scream Therapy. On Flex Your Head, we take a breather from punk rock and mental health and fawn over classic punk albums, which I guess is good for mental health. On this episode, Mike Isaacson makes his return after guesting on the No Means No Wrong episode. Hey Mike, how's it going? I'm good, how are you? Oh, pretty good. It's nice to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It was a good time the first time around and been enjoying the series. So. Right on. So what album are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the Husker Du classic Zen Arcade. So Husker Du's Zen Arcade came out July 1984, right? It's a double album, 71 minutes, 23 songs. So we're tackling a lot today. Husker Du formed in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1979. We have guitarist, vocalist Bob Mould, bassist, vocalist Greg Norton, and drummer, vocalist Grant Hart, RIP. What are your opening thoughts about this double album, Mike? You know, it's considered a classic for good reason. I mean, I think the thing... With Husker Du, they were one of those bands that was willing and able to attempt to be the best band in the world, or as good as anyone. And they really went for it on this album, and they hit it, you know? They cover so much ground musically. They're amazing musicians, amazing songwriters, and it's very personal, too, you know? I mean, it's a concept album, but it's got a lot of heart. You know, it's very affecting. It just blew me away when I heard it, you know, when I was like 17. And I spent a lot of time walking around with this on my Walkman. So full disclosure, and you know this, I've never been a huge Husker Du fan. Definitely had listened to them over the years. I was really big into Sugar and the Bob Mould solo stuff. But for some reason, Husker Du, me being a fanatic, never really crossed my radar in that way. But I've been cramming this thing for the last few weeks, knowing that we would talk about it and love the album. And I've been going through the back catalog and later stuff as well. So you've definitely made me a, a hardcore fan here. Cool. So thank you for that. It's a huge undertaking doing a double album, this many songs, concept album, which wasn't really done by a punk rock band or a hardcore band. I think there was one or two, maybe Sham 69 had a concept album. But for the most part, no one had really done this. And mm-hmm. to do it as a double album with their second album proper, it takes you know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then as soon as the Minutemen heard they were doing it, they're like, well, shit, we better do a double album too. So that, that gave us double nickels on the dime as well. A singing drummer is always an amazing thing to watch, but yes, he's indeed, such a yeah. great songwriter. Yeah. Even though Mold wrote more songs than Hart, most people, I think, favorite songs are, are Grant Hart compositions. He tended to write the really catchy stuff. Stuff like The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill and books about UFOs on the next album, New Day Rising, which is also unbelievable. Even on Zen Arcade. Pink Turns to Blue. Yeah, Pink Turns to Blue and Turn On the News are often kind of listed as the two top songs. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but they're great songs, yeah. And it seems like Bob Mould, with his career, he was a lot more prominent. And Mm -hmm. Grant Hart had a lot of solo material that he put out as well. So maybe that forgotten gem in, in the music world 
from my perspective, not knowing too much about the history, that Grant Hart got left by the wayside in some ways. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, he did have some addiction issues, which I think really dragged him down. I just watched the documentary about him, Every Everything, which is great. Yeah, Bob Mould and Greg Norton have both had healthy, successful lives, and, and Hart accomplished a lot, but you can see that life didn't go as smoothly for him after the band as it did for the other guys. So let's talk about some of the songs, uh, <laughs> some mm. of the 23 songs on this album. <laughs> uh, where, where do you start? Oh, God. Well, start right off the bat with something I learned today, Bob Mould. So so the concept of this album, basically, you know, it's a coming of age thing about a, a young man, you know, leaving a, a broken home, a, you know, dysfunctional family and setting out on his own, dabbles with the military, dabbles with a, a cult, meets a girl, falls in love, she dies of an OD. And then apparently he ends up working in video game design making a game called Search was the idea. That's not like in the lyrics or anything. In the end, it may or may all turn out to be a dream or not. I I always thought it was all supposed to be a dream, but then Mold was like, well, no, we were never like explicitly said it was all a dream, but the dream thing aspect, there's, you know, two of the songs, the instrumentals have dream in the title, recurring dream and, and dreams recurring. That allows for a lot of the psychedelia that is on the album, you know, the, yeah. the, the dreamy aspect of things. So that's like the loose structure that they created around the album. Like I say, I, the songs don't really that clearly tell that narrative. They do and they don't. There doesn't really get into talking about designing video games or anything. But obviously the title, the Zen Arcade, which I've been thinking about that title a lot. I mean, none of the songs are called Zen Arcade. It's not in the lyrics. You know, this is 1984. Zen wouldn't have been as much of a uh, word to drop in anywhere as it became later on. You know, obviously the you know, the Zen Buddhism you know, gained some popularity in the in the 60s and 70s in the U.S. and uh, you're know, going through the Beat Generation and all. You would have the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance would have been a big deal. And then the arcade, which you know was the refuge of teenagers you know in the 70s and 80s and you know, totally. you know now, now everybody's home on their on their game systems but back then we hit the arcades and um, that was a safe space except for, sure. for the rough kids that you know might beat you up but <laughs> <laughs> the notion of like this you know the zen the, the spiritual enlightenment seeking that and then combined with the arcade that's very 1984 guys in their early 20s coming up with a concept album it's it's perfect yeah, a little bit of uh, Double Dragon in there, some, some <laughs> Dragon Slayer, some Altered Beast. That was always my favorite game, Altered Beast. Asteroid, yeah. Yeah. I read up about the story, and I think it's cool. I was really hoping the dream sequence was just a thing that someone made up on Wikipedia because I hate the whole <laughs> dream sequence thing. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. of Dallas, Combat. the shower scene in Dallas. Totally, yeah. It's a great album, and it's a great story, but I don't know if you're familiar with American Idiot by Green Day, but... It seems like yeah. Green Day aped on the Husker Du story. I think they totally did. 
It's funny, you know, in that Grant Hart documentary, he refers to mercenary groups of penny catchers, referring to bands like Green Day, but the bands that cite Husker Du as huge influences on them. Hart artistically doesn't think too much of these bands. He, he slags on Smashing Pumpkins as well. And you know, there's probably a few others you could throw in there. Yeah. Because yeah, a lot of bands cite Husker Du as a big influence and inspired a lot of pop punk stuff but if you listen to zen arcade i mean yeah there's some catchy songs on there but it is not a pop punk album by any means no bob mold went on to be you know like sugar was very indie rock and green day i, I don't know all that much about american idiot i remember when it came out and what i've read is that yeah it did kind of rip off the narrative there for sure the songs on this album zen arcade to me sound like that uncomfortable zone between the black flag sst style of shouting and just the wild solos and the string bands and very much a Greg Ginn style guitar sound in some parts. And then moving into the more melodic psychedelia, wouldn't even call it hardcore anymore once they got into the Candy Apple Grey, that era. Mm -hmm. It's this awkward middle zone, but at the same time, it's really, really charged and exciting because you've got Mole just screaming away on the guitar and the drums are so solid and the whole band is just on fire at that point. So it's like that perfect little sweet spot. Yeah, they were spending tons of time. They were all broke as hell, and there were, uh, Grant Hart was living in this abandoned church, squatting in there, and that was their practice space. And they were just spending hours and hours refining their craft, and they were just, yeah, an incredible band. All of them uh, were so on it. Getting back to the songs, it covers so much ground. We got something I learned today, Broken Home, Broken Heart, or kind of mid-tempo hardcore not not as thrashy as it gets a little later on but then you've got never talking to you again the third track there are things that i'd like to say but i'm never talking to you again there's things i'd like to pray somewhere but i'm never talking to you again I'm never talking to you again. I'm never talking Fast drum acoustic guitar Grant Hart to you. And it's just a beautiful song. But, you know, anyone who hears that one, that one's going to stay with you. What's your opinion on the Hare Krishna song? <laughs> oh, I've always liked it. Yeah. I saw Grant Hart's opinion of it was that it just kind of filled out the album a bit more, but didn't really add anything musically was his own comment. Yeah, it's kind of like a refrain <laughs> after the first few songs and then going into yeah. some of the pummeling mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, because right after Hare Krishna, it does get into the four straight tracks of pretty pummeling hardcore there. I love the song Chartered Trips. It feels like mm-hmm. he's just mm-hmm. mumbling. Bob's just mumbling or shouting incomprehensible words. And then it, it goes into the stuff you can figure out. But I just love that. It's almost like he just had the words and just didn't care enough to really enunciate them. They actually talked about uh, the kind of buried the vocals. It wasn't until Flip Your Wig that they brought the vocals to the forefront. And I guess that was a conscious decision. I mean, we can get into the whole thing of Spot's production. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's do it right now. <laughs> I have a note here that says horrible production in all capital letters. <laughs> so Spot produced pretty much everything for SST, certainly at the time. These guys, Husker Du, left their home in Minneapolis, came out to the West Coast in California, they recorded this album. It's an hour and eight minutes of material that they recorded in one 45-hour session. It would have been fueled by a lot of speed. They were known, they, they used a lot of speed, these guys. Then I guess they had a break, and then they mastered it all in another 40-hour marathon session. So it cost 3200 to make the album. 
if they'd have been signed to Warner Brothers at that time and had gone into the studio with Ted Templeman, you know, things things would sound a lot different than they ended up being. No matter what format you have it on, it kind of sounds like you're playing it on a cassette on a shitty old ghetto blaster. <laughs> Which I like in some ways. I grew up with that kind of a sound. Yeah. I grew up on SST and I grew up on totally, yeah. you know, that harsh crossover hardcore sound that always sounded like smushing a pancake <laughs> there is no yeah. tops or bottoms in that sense i like it and i really feel like spot was just trying to make every band sound like black flag his allegiances were there with greg ginn and getting all the sst stuff recorded so a lot of that old sst stuff dinosaur junior and husker do and screaming trees they all had that kind of black flag production sound even the descendants did i think it's a good sound for black flag i don't know if it's a good sound for husker yeah. do. and i think you're right if they had been in the studio uh, with a producer who knew about top end and low end, (laughs) (laughs) not even a big producer. I think they would have had probably one of the best, well, it's already considered one of the best punk albums, but I think it would have been right up there in the top three. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would put it up there anyways, but one can dream of a really well-produced version of this album. They are such great musicians and they're doing so much. It is what it is. And it's the aesthetic, what we grew up with, but they certainly got their chance down the road, you know, to have things better produced. But then they never went off exploring sonically the way that they did on this album, you know, with the long, like, you know, Recurring Dreams, the last track, it's like 14 minutes of a psychedelic jam. It's really good. I mean, these guys can really play. Not many bands would have been able to pull that off. But that's just a testimony to how much time they spend playing together. They're all so talented. Bob Mould went on to a great success, both with Sugar and his solo stuff after. Grand Hart's solo stuff. He did some great, great music. His last piece was in 2013, was uh, inspired by John Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, I have to admit, I haven't listened to that yet. I mean to now that I watched the documentary, I want to give that a listen, but it came out to great critical acclaim. And Greg Norton, he ended up being a successful restaurateur known for his wine list, apparently. (laughs) Known for his mustache. One of the only guys in punk hardcore that had a huge mustache, almost a handlebar mustache pretty sweet there's a good chapter in our band could be your life michael azarad's book there's a great chapter about his Do in there and he talks about how they were kind of sick of the whole hardcore thing you know and everybody having to shave their heads and look the same and they were just like fuck it we're gonna grow our hair and grow our beards and whatever and norton just he forgot his razor on one of the road trips and was growing his mustache and complaining about it to des cadena from black flag Cadena was like hey man just curl it up he's like yeah <laughs> He's like the punk with the handlebar mustache. <laughs> Speaking of Des Kadena, he has the vocals on what's going on. That's right, yeah. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Inside my head. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Inside my head. What's going on? What's going on? Obviously, these guys are floating around L.A. They all lived in the same house, Black Flag guys, so I'm sure it wasn't yeah. hard for them to whip down to the studio and do it, but it's also really cool that they gave it the ode to that whole scene. We should also mention that, of course, SST ripped off Husker Du horribly. <laughs> Whoa, really? What a, what a shock. <laughs> yeah. When I was like 20 and recording my first album, I was warned by the producer. The one thing he said to was just like, never sign with SST. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're well-renowned for ripping people off unfortunately yeah Greg again yeah bob mold one of the openly gay punk rockers even back in the day i'm not sure when he came out as being gay mm-hmm. yeah mold was gay grant hart was bisexual 
Greg Norton was the straight guy in the group with the big mustache. <laughs> the Biggest Lie is about a relationship that Mold had with you know a straight guy who ended up going back to his girlfriend. So that's what that song's about. They didn't deliberately hide their sexuality, but it wasn't an open thing, I guess, till after Who's Purdue. The cover art on this album is really interesting. I was looking at it very close yesterday, and I think it's one of the better album covers of that era. It's not your traditional monochrome, punk rock, over-the-top style graphics. It's just this really cool art piece. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you know much about the piece. Well, I mean, Grant Hart did it. He didn't take the photo, but Grant Hart was a, a talented graphic artist. His dad was a drafting teacher. He grew up doing this. Got into doing a lot of collage work. I guess his main forte. So yeah, he did it. It's very 1984. It's bleak, but there's still that color there, which I guess is probably pretty representative of the music. It's in a, a junkyard with their figures all turned into shadows crossing it with the pastel colors added to the, the cars. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful cover. I never had it on vinyl. I only ever had it on cassette. The cassette guy is over here. Yeah, exactly. I had New Day Rising on cassette. Uh, you can oh, never yeah. really fully experience the packaging and artwork when you're dealing with a format that's three inches by five inches <laughs> exactly, <yeah. laughs> wrapped in hard plastic. So my only criticism of the album is, well, obviously the production, we talked about that, but it's just so unrelenting of how long it is. I get past the first mm -hmm. half and actually I'd really like to have it on vinyl because then you could do the sides A to D would be really cool. Right. Yeah. It's just so long. And by the time yeah. you get into the second half, I just feel spent right yeah. pushing myself to listen to the whole thing because i think that's the way it's meant to be is a full concept album but at the same time <laughs> i do have to turn it off halfway through a lot yeah. of times sure sure yeah and i've certainly seen it said that it is an album that best appreciated on vinyl i never had that i guess I had the cassette that i at least had to flip over it's an intense journey they're telling a tale and just covering so much ground musically and thematically and then the contrasting songwriting styles and I mean, contrasting and incredibly complimentary. Just to backtrack a little bit, I was reading up on the recording. Summer of 83 in the church turned punk squat. And supposedly they spent a lot of time just jamming, but they got to the point where it became almost a black flag. Uh, Greg Jinn powering through six, seven hours a day. And I think about bands that do that and maybe not so much these days, but the bands of the old that did that and you're going to come up with 20 songs and a lot of bands mm -hmm. are going to shave off 10 of those. But in this case, they didn't. And I'm wondering, do you feel like there's any throwaway tracks on this? I do know that Grant Hart thinks that the album would have been better served as just a single album. Yeah. So that that's his opinion. The throwaways, you got the hardcore section in the middle there. From Beyond the Threshold to The Biggest Lie, that's this four song Pretty similar thrashy stuff. then you got some of the little instrumental interludes and things and then you know obviously recurring dreams the 14 minute outro i don't know that the album is what it is i could certainly imagine it you know if you did condense it into one album you'd be holy shit it would be nothing but absolute stellar tracks yeah i don't know it's hard for me to 
imagine taking any of these out. That's the album as it is. I know they wrote a bunch of other songs that did get thrown away, right? So these guys were coming up with a lot of material. I get the sense that this was pre-planned. It wasn't like they went in there and ended up coming out with 23 songs. They went in there knowing that they're going to do a double album. I think it was preconceived, which I think is really cool. Bob Mould said to Steve Albini in an old zine he did in 1983, Mm -hmm. we're going to try to do something bigger than anything like rock and roll and the whole puny touring band idea. I don't know what it's going to be. We have to work that out. But it's going to go beyond the whole idea of punk rock or whatever. To me, it sounds like they went in there knowing full well they're going to come out with a double album. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then six months later, they come out with New Day Rising. You know, they were incredibly (laughs) prolific and all of it was so good. Zen Arcade got released and SSD only printed somewhere between 3,500 and 5,000 copies. And his career were like, we think we're going to sell a lot more than that. But SST, they also had put out Double Nickels on the Dime, another double album. They had a bunch of Black Flag stuff coming out. So you ended up with Husker Du being out on tour, um, Zen Arcade getting you know, great critical acclaim. Everyone's wanting a copy and they're not available because they're all sold out and it took months to get any more copies printed. So that cost them dearly at the time. SST's infinite wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watched some live videos of some of these songs from this album, and the production on the live stuff is actually better than the production on the album. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can hear more going on. They should have done a live album. Just get up on stage and have someone else run the tape. I would say probably my favorite track is Whatever, which is a Bob Maltin. Even though I'm more of a Grant Hart guy, Whatever is such a great song. dad i'm sorry mom and dad don't worry i'm not the son you wanted but what did you expect i made my world of happiness to combat your neglect that's pretty intense especially you know, hearing that as a young man and relating you know when what's going on comes in song 12 that sets the tone for what's going to happen with this kid going forward that moment of maybe mental health crisis mm-hmm. it goes from there into some sort of dreamscape stuff the Tooth Fairy and the Princess is really cool, too. I relate that one. Mm-hmm. And then it's funny because the second to last song is Turn On The News. And to me, this mm-hmm. just sounds almost like a Kiss song. You know, like the Gene <laughs> yeah. And it ends with the Paul Stanley high vocals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Let's dive into some YouTube comments. In this case, the common theme is what we touched on is just that the album saved a lot of people from difficult stuff in their lives. A lot of comments Mm -hmm. around that. Anything from bad days at work to suicide attempts. So Mm -hmm. this album was very important to a lot of folks, not only growing up, but now. Yeah. So the one that really stood out for me is by Sealand, and it was four years ago. I ran far away from home when I was 17. My parents divorced a couple of years later. Not long after that, I heard Husker do in Zen Arcade for the first time. I relive those moments every time I play the album, and I remember the anger and the sorrow, but I'm also happy because it's all part of the past now. Today, it may be my favorite album. Uh, (laughs) Aww. Let's just go, uh. (laughs) Uh, uh. (laughs) Aww. No, that's great. I mean, it 
it helped me a lot. I really latched on to it. They were my god band when I was, say, 17 and pretty depressed. And um, yeah, made a huge, huge difference in my life. I spent a lot of time with this. So wait a second. Are you Sealand? <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> it says 17. I don't know. I did. I read an interview with Bob Mould where he did say a lot of people come up to him and say, yeah, you saved my life. Yeah. I would have liked to have heard this when I was a kid and really been able to do that for myself. I definitely had those albums that really meant a lot to me and helped me, but I feel like this could have really been something to lean on when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only a few albums that I can think of that are ambitious enough to go beyond strict genres and, and then also have the musicianship to pull it off and then also trying to tell a story. I mean, I guess basically we're talking about like a punk rock opera. Obviously, yeah, The Who had Quadrophenia as their rock opera. I think Zen Arcade, I think, you know, could be, even though I don't like opera music, Mike Watt, Contemplating the Engine Room, is a punk rock opera that's also one of my all-time favorite albums. These guys, to pull it off, be so ambitious and so talented, the amount of work that goes into something like this is just unbelievable. It's just this great artistic gem that's left for us, and here we are now, you know, over 35 years later, still talking about it. And I mean, you're still discovering it really, you know, as many yeah. people still will be. Yeah. I'm just really grateful this album was in my life because it's been one of the key ones for sure. And I'm glad that you turned me on to it. Yeah. So thanks again. <laughs> I owe you one. All right. So Scream Therapy is available at ScreamTherapyHQ.com. We've got 40 episodes of the main podcast about punk rock and mental health, as well as a handful of these podcasts about classic albums flex your head so check those out again screamtherapyhq.com thanks a lot for being here mike it's been really fun once again and really enjoy chatting with you about these albums me too thanks very much for having me Shut your head!